0: Okay. Well, we've got a special episode for you today. This actually was something I planned to do a long, long time ago, very back in the beginning of the show, but then the action became so swift and intense we really just didn't have time to put it in. But I've always meant to do a history of the Baronies of Faroe, the backdrop for the area that we're adventuring in. So without further ado, the histories of the Baronies of Faroe. During the golden age of the reign of kings of the Old Kingdom, the five foothill baronies were almost dismissed and considered hedge baronies due to the lesser resources they controlled in the unfavorable terrain of their hillside locations, also because of their distance from the valley of Campo Magno with its fabulous wealth and its valley soils and its proximity to the capital and resultant trade. While several of the hillside baronies controlled resources desirable to the lowland, the wine of Colesque, the ore and crafts of Feramond's, the trade of the exotic East for Porta Magnum—they were considered second-rate baronies at best. While they too suffered greatly in the aftermath of the Great Mage Wars, because they were considered second-rate and because they were often difficult to assail because of their geography, they were left largely intact when the valley was raised. They therefore provided the anchor to which civilization could hold on to in the period right after the conflict, and eventually were the seeds in reconquering the chaos that had resulted from the destruction of the kingdom and the fertile Central Valley. Once the immediate problems of famine, disease, and settling the remnants of a huge displaced population were solved, the barons realized that they were now the head of a new order. While autonomous, they bonded together for mutual protection from the harsh new reality they faced. They formed a council of barons to meet and hash out disputes and hopefully wisely govern the land that was left after the apocalypse that had befallen them. When it was discovered that the city of Ubrum Concordia still poked its head out of the encroaching sands of the Mare, and the fabled oracle was still to be found and queried, they rebuilt the oracle's tower and met in conclave at that location, in neutral territory, central to all the baronies. In time, this new order was able to return civilization to the kingdom, and new normalcy took over as the kingdom moved forward with this new life. Calesque. Kalesque is often considered to be the fifth barony of Faroe, as it is often ignored and overlooked in the politics and confrontation of the other baronies. This is due to its out-of-the-way location in the northwest side of the kingdom. The entire barony is contained within a perched valley in the foothills of the northern mountains. A palisade of cliffs on the south side separates the valley from what was the fertile valley of the Old Kingdom and is now the Mare Arenosum. The coastal mountains to the west and the spine of the mountains that cuts the valley off from the east neatly contain the barony and also provide a geographic defense, as only hardy mountain folk can navigate the peaks of its flanks to gain entry into the valley from above. During the Mage Wars, the residents threw up a gate and stoneworks across the only major pass through the palisade to complete the defense that nature had otherwise provided. In its remote location at the end of the navigable part of the northern high road, it may very well have been forgotten altogether if not for its principal export, wine. Koleskwe's unique geography makes its volcanic soil and south-facing slopes uniquely suited In the kingdom for the growing and production of this commodity which the halflings have turned into a high art the towering peaks to the north and the west provide a rain shadow which spares the valley from much of the precipitation that otherwise falls on the rest of the kingdom during the growing season while snow melt feeds year-round streams that irrigate the vine rows of the barony in addition the halflings have another tightly controlled commodity coffee from which forms a second smaller export the location of the coffee fields of the halflings and the technology for turning the raw berries into the delicious drink sought by the well-to-do across the kingdom is a tightly controlled secret known only to those directly involved in its trade. In addition to these exportable goods, the residents have many fields and gardens that provide most of their daily needs, and the residents enjoy their almost forgotten status, as they would much rather be left alone to enjoy good food and great wine than puzzle over the politics of the rest of the valley. Kaleskwe is the home of the halflings, and fully 60% of the population are halflings. Of the remainder, 20% are gnomes having settled here after being displaced from their homeland between Kaleskwe and Feramons during the mage wars. 10% are dwarves and humans and elves, and half-elves make up the remainder. Mons. The other northern barony is Mons, the Iron Mountain, named for its wealth in that particular metal. It started in antiquity as a small but incredibly rich magnetite dig. Within a few years of the mines founding, the dwarves realized what a find they had on their hands as more and greater veins of ore were found and more and more of their brethren moved to join them. This led to a small, then a medium, then a great settlement being burrowed out of the mountain as the dwarves followed the veins of ore deeper and deeper into the mountain and the population grew to include the vast majority of the kingdom's dwarves. Eventually, the settlement grew too large to be ignored and was granted the status of barony and the first baron was selected in a week-long crafting competition, a tradition which continues to the present. As upon the death or abdication of the current baron, those wishing to take over the title, gather and create an item displaying their crafting prowess in hopes of swaying the craftmasters judging the competition. Ferramans, perhaps more than any of the other baronies, was geographically prepared for the cataclysm of the Mage Wars. "'Although its vast resources and expertise were attractive to those warring over the fertile valley below, "'the natural defense of a vast city built into a mountain with few points of entry or attack "'deterred even the most ambitious from doing so. "'The dwarves had little trouble fortifying the few entries to their home from virtually any outside attack. "'It is because of this that the gnomes fled to the mountain after their neighboring ancestral home was destroyed. "'Eventually they resettled to the high valley behind the mountain and re-established their homes and workshops.' and now make many inventions powered by magical crystals that are hewn from the rocks of the mines below their settlement. In addition to the mountain's namesake iron, the dwarves also discovered veins of precious metals and even occasionally gemstones with which to decorate their creations. In the deepest diggings of all, they came across the fabled ore mithril, from which they craft the greatest of their treasures. All of these commodities they trade for foodstuffs as only crop of any size they grow is peppers and the fabled peppered fields of the dwarves are legendary across the kingdom. Of special note, because the title of baron is conferred in a crafting competition, it is not hereditary. Thus, unlike the other baronies that have a baron and a baroness, there is only the baron in Feramond's, and the holder, male or female, is called by that title. Their life partner, if they have one, is known as the baron's consort. As you would expect from such a specialized environment and being the home of the dwarves, the population of the barony is 80% dwarves. 15% of the remainder is the expatriate gnomes and halflings, and humans make up most of the rest of the population with the occasional hardy elves and half-elves thrown in. Porta Magnum Porta Magnum is the name of the Great Gate for a good reason. In the days of the Old Kingdom and even today, it was the gateway to the great deserts of the east where spices and other exotic goods can be had. All of these goods and all of the wealth that goes with them have to go through the warehouses of Porta Magnum to get to the other four baronies. The city itself is built in eight rings bisected by the great highway going up from the valley floor to the ridge top. The higher the circle the more wealthy the inhabitants and the more posh the surroundings. Residents of the top 3 circles live in grand estates surrounded by manicured gardens, while those in the first circle live in tenements and row houses. Also, One of the great works of the old kingdom, the sewers of Porta Magnum, favor the rich over the poor. They are small and flow well at the top of the city, but can become raging cascades when they reach the lower levels and often overflow there when the rains come. In concert with the physical divisions, the city's inhabitants live in a rigid caste system. The residents of the first circle are the nobility of the city. These families also include the baron and his family. The second and third circles are the minor nobles. The fourth and fifth circles are the skilled artisans, crafters, and minor tradesmen. The sixth and seventh circles are the workers, and the eighth circle is the menial laborers of the fields and all of the rest of the lowest jobs of the city. The caste system is ironclad, and someone born into a circle of the city can only look forward to a life similar to their parents. The highest aspiration of a resident of a lower tier is to work for someone of a higher tier and thereby perhaps marry someone in a higher tier so that their grandchildren might live a better life than themselves. Working for a higher tier also promises easier employment that can be had at a lower tier. To this end, the residents almost always refer to themselves as residents of such and such a tier, and those lucky enough to work for a higher tier will advertise that fact. Residents of the Seventh Circle, Servant of the Fifth, for instance. Heraldry is important to everyone in the city as it informs the populace on where a person fits in. Everyone in the city can recognize the heraldic devices of the 13 noble houses of the first circle, the 14th houses of the second, and the 20 houses of the third. A resident is generally also aware of the heraldry of the notable families of a couple of tiers above and below them. Because of this, heraldic devices are constantly displayed. At the very least, most residents will wear their family arms as a belt buckle or shoulder brooch, In the 4th through 6th circles, more ostentatious displays, such as whole tunics and such may be emblazoned. Below that level, the families are of too little note to require more than token effort. Above that, the noble families are too well known to require more than the most subtle display of arms. Most houses and businesses are likewise emblazoned with the owner's coats of arms. Because of the caste system, manners are very important, and there is a rigid set of protocols for behavior and address residents of a lower tier will always show deference to a higher tier. The residents of a higher tier will show an amount of respect for the residents of a lower tier depending on how distant they are socially. If they are within a few tiers they will act with politeness but less so as the division widens. For instance a merchant of the fifth tier will act with polite superiority to the residents of the sixth and seventh and less so with the eighth. Whereas a noble of the first circle will use a polite courtesy with the minor nobles of the second and third, distant politeness with the merchants and artisans of the fourth and fifth, and may not even acknowledge the workers below that tier at all. Likewise, for a lower caste to touch or threaten an upper caste will result in a harsh punishment, while those in the upper tiers will have wide latitude in their dealings with the lower caste. For the nobility, they can beat and even kill members of the lower circles without repercussion. The return of the elves has thrown the high society of Porta Magnum into an uproar. Elven consorts were very quickly seen as the ultimate spouse for a high noble of the city. It became such a fashion that every noble family has some amount of elven blood, and being visibly elven is considered to be a huge boost for the marriage prospects of a noble youth. The economy of Porta Magnum is built around commerce, and especially shipping. Its sand docks and airship slips are busy at all hours, moving products imported from the great desert, made in artisan shops, and especially grown in great grain fields. Port Magnum is the grain basket of the kingdom. The plateau south of the city hosts endless miles of grain fields of all sorts. These are almost all owned by the houses of the first three levels of the city and run by sharecroppers from the bottom two. As all the baronies in the south side of the Marais, Port Magnum is primarily populated by humans representing over half the population. However, as a hub of trade, the city is one of the most cosmopolitan in the kingdom. The influx of elvish blood in the noble houses has boosted the population of elves and half-elves to 20% of the residents while dwarves, halflings and gnomes mainly artisans working the shops and mid-tiers make up 10% of the population. Excaliburium Colise. It is said that in the time of the old kingdom the king sat upon the crest of this hill with his forces arrayed below him waiting for the barbarians to come out of the mountains. After a monumental battle, the barbarians were decimated and thrown back into the mountains, never to menace the lowlands again. To keep watch, a keep was built to defend the area. From that, the city of Sentinel Hill sprang up and became the barony of Exculbarium Colise. Often considered to be the red headed stepchild of the baronies because of its unfortunate location and circumstances, it is the least wealthy of all the baronies. Portum Magnum controls the great grain fields east of it. South of the barony is only the great southern mountains from which the barbarians appeared in the days of legend, and the west is sparsely settled forest all the way to Civitas Cataracta. It does not have the mineral or agricultural wealth of the other baronies, and the swampy lands surrounding the city produce little but peat and root in any abundance. It does have one feature to its advantage, as it is the only dockings on the south side of the Mare Arnosum for the sand ships that ply the dusty wastes. This allows the barony to generate modest income from docking fees of the transport ships. Unfortunately, this has not funded the city thoroughly, as evidenced by the construction of the city's defensive works. The keep and the original city are walled in stone, but the subsequent expansion of the city have to be content with a tall wooden wall for its defense. Exculbarium Cullis is one of the least diverse of all the southern baronies. While anyone can be found in the dockside inns and taverns of the permanent population, fully 70% is human, and mainly half-elves, elves, and dwarves make up the remainder with a few halflings and gnomes thrown in. Civitas Cataracta Originally, the great bay in the mountains that would become Civitas Cataracta was visited for its natural beauty. The great steppe waterfall was considered to be one of the natural wonders of the kingdom. With the coming of the elves, however, it took on a new significance. No one could explain how the island in the middle of the Cataracta Fluvia could resist the power of the river and not be carried away piece by piece in the current. It was the elves that determined that there was a rare focus of magical energies that protected it. They then set about to construct a tower on the island, so the energies could be better studied and harnessed. Skilled artisans in stone and arcana built the edifice and protected it with the best wards they could devise. As more and more people came to visit the two great wonders, a small city grew up around them. A keep was then constructed, straddling the river to protect the city, and a baron installed to oversee the lands. With the keep and the tower in in the city's strategic location, the city quickly grew up around the cataract. Eventually, curtain walls were built from cliff-face to precipice, containing and protecting the city from the dangers of the mountains as everything west of the city is sparsely settled wilderness. This grew into the great walled city of Civitas Cataracta that we see today. Although the reasons for founding the city are all but dim memories, Civitas Cataracta exists as a force in its own right, as it stands on the great highway constructed by the Old Kingdom and the only thoroughfare that runs the southern length of the Mare Arnosum. All commerce west of Excalmarium Colise must run through the city. Thus, the judicious application of tariffs and taxes from the ebb and flow of goods passing through the lands provides a city with a modest but quite adequate wealth. It is said that the tower in the middle of the city does have a lone inhabitant, who is said by some to be an ancient mage of great power, and described by others as an old half-crazed crackpot. Almost no one can say, though, as few have had the audacity to knock on the tower door, even fewer, have been allowed inside. The city is primarily human, and humans make up 65% of the population. A small number of dwarves and halflings and gnomes, mainly crafters, can be found as well as the occasional elf coming to study the tower, and that makes up the other 35% of the town's inhabitants. So there we are, the five main baronies left over that govern the kingdom, I hope you have a little better insight into their formation and their composition, and we may have more information on those later on. But for that, we'll have to wait for the next episode. Until then, rate us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. Email us at relicofthepastpodcast at gmail.com with questions or comments. Follow us at Relic of the Past or Relic of the Past Podcast on your social media feeds. And thank you for playing in the world that lives inside my head.